Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Partially Examined Life. This is episode 291, part two. We've been discussing uh, Kassir's essay on man and Langer's philosophy in a new key, the chapters on mythology and religion and ritual. I guess I want to start with the point I left last time, which is the relationship of all this to psychology that, I don't know, Kassir is quoting Durkheim and maybe is more on board with the anti-psychologism. He says specifically that we need to understand the social character of man right? Social physics, that that is his whole, the whole point of his project in chapter six, he's laying that out. Whereas Langer seems, I don't know, less hostile to psychoanalysis, for instance, and explicitly says, like, she's trying to be one of the few people to, who's actually cared about logic and logical positivism and Frege and Russell and all that stuff. And psychoanalysis on the other side, you know, these things that were going on at the same time, historically, that more people should have been in the know about both of them and trying to link them together. And so that's one of the things she is open to in her laying out of how uh, less explicit forms of representation lay the groundwork for the ability to do logic, to have reason. I don't know, Wes, as our resident psychotherapeutic practitioner, were your Jungian interests coming to bear here or something? Well, she's talking about something that's very important to psychoanalysis, which is the way symbols work. And we, we've talked a lot about this in our dreams episode and in Lacan and everything else. But the really fascinating idea here is that, and it, it's not just in dreams, just to recap the Freudian idea, right? Is that what happens in dreams, the theory that was popular at his time is just random noise, right? Just the brain is throwing stuff against the wall. And then one might say, well, why does it kind of take on a story-like form? It's pretty chaotic, but still dreams kind of like, you know, there's still some coherence to them. Or, or why do things happen in dreams the way they do? And what Freud is going to say is that, yeah, you know, you could see kind of the material element of it is chaotic. But, you know, it's like you're scattering metal filings, right? But you're not just scattering them into nothing. You're scattering them into a force field. And that force field is desire. So our dreams get structured by desire, and this seems like, a, to me, an entirely plausible and commonplace idea, as much as other people object to it. We're desiring creatures, and why wouldn't our fantasies, while we're asleep in one way or another, reflect those desires? Which also means they reflect our fears as well, right? The thwarting of it, our desires or our anxieties. So yeah, those fantasies run on wish fulfillment and they happen during the daytime as well. And you, you the listener, if you pay attention to your daydreams and your fantasies, you will begin to see that there's a lot of highly symbolic stuff going on. The mind is making interesting associations. And that's really important to Langer, right? The whole foundation of this reading that we're doing is that there's something called presentational symbolism, which is to say it's not the type of symbolism that just happens through spoken or written language. You can actually do a kind of primitive abstraction through image symbols. Like, so for instance, roses are associated with beauty. 
so in other words, presentational symbolism is kind of piggybacks on the concept of metaphor or logical analogy. And those are our first general concepts. Those are our primitive concepts, metaphors. And if you want to understand how those things get elaborated, how those concepts get developed, they get developed through storytelling. Storytelling is a natural kind of outcropping or, or a natural elaboration of that kind of presentational symbolism. That's the way she starts off our reading for this episode. And from there, she just unravels a wonderful, detailed, rich account that gets us from presentational symbolism to fairy tales and mythology and all the rest of it. Yeah, can I just go ahead and read the beginning of six here? If language is bored indeed from the profoundly symbolific character of the human mind, we may not be surprised to find that this mind tends to operate with symbols far below the level of speech. Sounds like the unconscious. I don't know. Previous studies have shown that even the subjective record of sense experience, the, quote, sense image, is not a direct copy of actual experience, but has been projected in the process of copying into a new dimension, the more or less stable form we call a picture. It is not the protein mercurial elusiveness of real visual experience, but a unity and lasting identity that makes it an object of the mind's possession rather than a sensation. Furthermore, it is not firmly and fixedly determined by the pattern of natural phenomena as real sensations are, but is free in the same manner as the little noises which a baby produces by impulse and will. We can call up images and let them fill the virtual space of vision between us and real objects, etc. Yeah, so this is somewhat just recapping the novel epistemological story that we got last time. But now that we're trying to set this up as the kind of thing that, of course, stories and ways of relating to the world and ethical stuff and all the other things we were talking about in the first half are going to be the fruits of this spontaneous sort of activity. Yeah, the next step here is that she describes something again, which is close to what we've talked about as schematization. So we get, when she talks about fantasy, she is thinking about these spontaneous abstractions from experience where we get a general impression that's not very detailed that we use to schematize and therefore symbolize an event, right? So in other words, you know, if we think of the concept of a train arrival, we might just think of something associated with that, just a general impression of noise and mass, for instance. So we don't even see that, you know, in our mind's eye, we might not even see the wheels turning or something like that. We don't notice all the, all the details. And then that experience gets repeated. You know, things kind of fit into that experience. So it's a train approaching again, or they don't. And new impressions gradually get added to this kind of conceptual framework. What also happens is that we get these sort of symbolic resonances with that experience. Like I've been talking a bit about the literal denotative part of this and the development of the concept of a train arriving, but also there are metaphorical meanings. Like, so for instance, you know, train might symbolize the approaching future or power or speed or directedness. In a way, those things are more salient to us. These are two different concepts of symbolization, right? Working together, you know, the former, right, is going to lead to our more analytical and scientific way of viewing things. How do, how do concepts get developed? But alongside that, we get this other more emotive or whatever you want to call it form of symbolism. Yeah. She says that images, fantasies, have the characteristics of symbols. So dreams are not like weak sense impressions. They're symbolic. 
And they're metaphorical, by which she means that the first thing we do when we grapple with an image is we envision a story around it. And that this is kind of like our stock and trade. This is what the mind does. It manipulates images and it envisions stories. But the transition to fantasy is really about bringing in the notion of similarity and dissimilarity. So in other words, there has to be some level of abstraction about the train example. There has to be some level of abstraction from the experience in order for you, when you have it again, to say it is like or unlike the previous experience, and then to start weaving those things together. And the things which you experience repetitively, which are like each other, are a source of familiarity. And that is how we get to the point of conceiving of something as a symbol. When we, you know, when we have repetitive experience of the like, then it's much easier to transition into a conception, a generalization of the thing. And image can then serve as an abstraction, as a metaphor, just in the same way that you would use words in a verbal expression. So this is how we get from thing, 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 to fetish representing a thing, the skull, the whatever. In essence, she's describing metaphor using imagery instead of words. Yeah. I think she wants to say, how is it that we kind of get into the fairy tale world of early childhood, which is... Dreamlike. So early childhood or primitive societies, how do we get there? Her account is a little bit complicated, but it has something to do with the way in which symbols multiply themselves, or she puts as she puts it, metaphor grows the semantic. So symbols multiply by way of this interaction between fantasy, but also wishes. So the things that we are grappling with early on are objects of desire. And for infants, those things are very indistinct. You know, we can't conceptualize it early on. We may not even quite know the difference between me, myself, and the external world, or, you know, what food is exactly. I wouldn't call it food, you know, all of that stuff. So I might just know the warm feeling of being sated or the breast or something like that. So ultimately, because we're thrown into that kind of world, we don't, when we're young, we don't have the language, we don't have the well-developed symbolic apparatus to deal objectively with everything that's coming at us. So we are much more on the side of the other form of symbolism, right? Which is like the symbolism that associates trains with power or roses with women. So we tend to kind of mix dream and reality. And we live in a very metaphorical dreamlike fairy type of world. And so that's the idea of what it's like, you know, to be in a primitive society or a a child. Metaphor kind of rules instead of more precise, literal meaning. Yeah, this has kind of given me an additional way to think about the problem of self-consciousness that we've talked about self-consciousness being tied to language. So she says around page 120, the first thing we instinctively try to conceive is the feeling of being alive. You know, our first consciousness is our sense of need, is desire. And those both sound to me like self-consciousness. And like, no, actually, 
animals, they're into the thing. They're perceiving the desired thing. They're not perceiving that I have a desire, but it's really only when you put it in words that it becomes like something that requires self-consciousness. So it's the difference between merely having a qualia of a desiring feeling and being aware of you as an entity and desire as a separate entity that you have, you know, this kind of sophisticated thing. But by saying that we have a whole way that we think about ourselves without having to put anything in words, that we think about our situation, then that allows us to have a certain amount of self-knowledge without it having to rise to the level of anything that we would be start being worried about, whether animals have it or no. It can just be like this childhood thing you were describing. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.